just said one of those little things in a conversation after a, a, um, a party that had, had had some friends of ours where I just talked with her and she said, how are you doing? I said, not so good. And she said, well, why don't you just see Dr. Duval for an evaluation? Just see him once. And I did that. And in one session, I felt like this guy really sees what I'm about. And, and one of the things that he did, he, he said, I'm going to ask you a question and I don't want you to answer right away. I want you to answer it as, um, as truthfully as you can, because I know the answer. Welcome to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast brought to you by the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Each month, we feature a case presentation, interview, or discussion by one or more of our doctors who practice a different kind of psychiatry. We are interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at organomy.org. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. We'd love for you to leave a rating and review about what you enjoy about the podcast, and you can do so either through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or an Amazon's Audible. This helps others know why they too may want to listen. If you're interested in attending one of our webinar presentations, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. You can connect with us and learn more at ergonomy.org or a different kind of psychiatry.com. This episode features an interview with Peter Christ, MD. He discusses with me how he first learned about Wilhelm Reich and ergonomy as a college biology student and how through a series of chance encounters and important moments in his life, his path brought him to medical orgone therapy, medical school, training to be a medical ergonomist, and beyond. Dr. Christ, I really appreciate you spending the time with me today. Um, I've heard bits and bits and pieces of how you ended up where you are, but I'd like to hear more about how you became a medical ergonomist, how it began, and how you ended up where you are today. So thank you, Dr. Burrett. Um, I uh, am pleased to be here with you today. And what you say, bits and pieces, as I've thought about it, uh, the story of how I became a, a medical ergonomist has so many threads to it that uh, I've been thinking about many coincidences, uh, serendipitous uh, um, occasions. Um, and that, so there's, there's the story about exactly how I became a medical ergonomist, learned about ergonomy, but there's also the backstory about um, who I was, what I was interested in at the time that I learned about it. So uh, I um, learned about ergonomy and Reich when I was 16 years old, and I thought about it um, this morning, December 1965. So if you do the math, that's in December, that'll be 56 years ago. So wow. there's a specific moment where um, that is emblazoned in my mind when I first heard Wilhelm Reich's name and about ergonomy. But before I tell that moment, I think 
um, some of the coincidental serendipitous things that they would be easy to get mystical and call them fate or whatever uh, happened a few months before that. So I want to actually start my story there and then we can even go back earlier to what sure. uh, uh, I was interested in at the time. But um, I, I, my family moved from Ohio to uh, Oregon um, the summer of 1965 when I was 15 years old. And I'd been studying um, languages at, uh, uh, when I was in high school. And that had been my passionate interest was to uh, learn and, and interpret languages. But my high school only had um, um, Latin and French as the languages they taught. So my father helped arrange uh, for me to uh, take college languages up at uh, Denison University where he taught in Granville, Ohio, where I grew up. And so the high school agreed after my um, uh, senior uh, year um, to give me a high school diploma, uh, what would have been the end of my senior year uh, if I went ahead and and applied and and uh, uh, as a freshman in in um, uh, at Denison, and so there I was. I was going to be going to college after my junior year of high school, and the high school would give me a diploma after one year uh, at the uh, college there. So we moved. So that blew that whole plan all apart. So there was no way I was going to get a high school diploma. So there I was left with, am I going to go back to a new high school that I've never been to? Or should I try to apply to um, the college where my father was had moved to and was teaching, Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon at the time? So that's what I did. Um, and so I was accepted there. And on freshman orientation, I was walking from the ha new house we had moved into, which was maybe a half a mile from the college campus, got down to the end of our street, turned towards the college, and this car pulled up alongside me. And I sort of got a little uncomfortable. Why are they stopping? And they said, oh, you're going to freshman and orientation? And ordinarily, I wouldn't have gotten in the car, I don't think, with strangers. But I said, yeah. I mean, they seemed friendly. There was a woman driving and a, um, a, a guy in the passenger seat. And so I got in and they, they drove me over uh, to freshman orientation and they looked older than freshmen. And I said, so are you Lewis and Clark students? And the woman uh, named Donna said, yes, um, uh, I'm, I'm a senior. And the other guy said, well, I dropped out of Lewis and Clark last year. I would have been a senior. And I said, why are you going to freshman orientation? And they said, our good friend Jim Fetty is, is uh, talking there. They've invited him to, to speak at freshman orientation. I thought, that's interesting. Let me see who watch and see who this this guy is and it turns out uh, he, he was kind of a rebel on campus and uh, learned that the previous um, fall he, he had run for student body king walking around campus in a purple jumpsuit <laughs> hair than most people and at that point i had almost shoulder length red hair and so i was kind of one of the ones that didn't quite fit in with the the rest of the 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 dress of people with their button-down shirts and crew cuts and over over that fall um term i got to know jim a bit he was um uh, one of the well-known poets on on campus uh, in the english department and then 
but you know, I, I, I saw him around campus. Then at Christmas time, uh, my sister and I decided to get a job at the post office, and uh, we knew neither of us had a driver's license, so we knew we would be stuck with daytime shifts to take the bus down to the post office unless we could uh, get a ride with somebody. So my sister saw a classmate of hers, um, David Elliker, over uh, in one of the other lines, and she said, well, let me go ask Dave if he's going to be riding down uh, and then we could carpool with him. And so she went over and he said, oh, yeah, I'm I'm going with a group. And he pointed and there was Jim Fetty, Morris, the guy in the car that had stopped to pick me up and Donna, the woman who had been driving. I said, this is an amazing coincidence. He's not even a student here. So then I got to know them over, um, uh, you know, during our lunch breaks at, at four in the morning because we were on the midnight to eight shift. And um Morris was into the macrobiotic diet and Jim Fetty was a rebel and, and picked up five hamburgers from what he called the lo local crap burger joint to just sort of stick it to Morris about his strict uh, diet. <laughs> and, and then they said, well, we've gotten to know you. Um, David's father shot a goose um, and he's going to we're going to have a, a macrobiotic Christmas dinner. Uh, you and Connie are invited, my sister Connie. And so it was during that dinner uh, that afterwards Morris turned to me, he said, you're a biology student. And I remember the almost I'm, I'm quite sure these are the exact words to this day. You're a biology student. Did you ever hear of the work of Wilhelm Reich? I said, no. He said, well, he was a German scientist who uh, discovered a new form of energy that moves in all living things, but it doesn't move the way it's supposed to in human beings. And he was put in prison in the Eisenhower administration and died in prison. I said, I never heard of him. And all of those things just absolutely intrigued me because I had gotten discouraged by the biochemical approach to biology. I'd grown up in the woods in, in Ohio, uh, near the woods, and, and just watching the birds, tracking animals. To me, that was biology. And so to hear the Krebs cycle taught, I said to myself, you know, this guy's talking about energy, uh, the, the Krebs cycle um, uh, of energy, but he's talking about it without any energy. So to hear that there was somebody looking at how energy moves in, in animals was just intriguing. And to a, at that point, I had turned 16. To a 16-year-old hearing about someone who was put in prison for his discoveries just grabbed me. So... Um, after that dinner, I went down to the Portland, the Lewis and Clark, the college library, could not find any books by Wilhelm Reich, went to the Portland library, could not find any books by Wilhelm Reich, went to bookstores, did not find anything. And I just sort of put it aside. And Dr. Chris, if I could interrupt you for a minute, when he said that to you, um, did, did you respond to him? Was there uh, any more to it than that? Well, I, I know there was, and, I, and I'm not sure, I don't remember, I, you know, I know inside what I and I, I'm pretty sure I said, wow, no, I never heard of him. Um, and, you know, then the conversation turned to something else, and that that's really all that we engaged in at that point. Um, so um, during that next 
a year I got to know um, someone uh, and and we became boyfriend and girlfriend, um, uh, Gail. And at the so the following fall, um, she learned that she had to go back to California because her mother couldn't afford to continue to send her to Lewis and Clark. And so she moved down to San Francisco. Um, uh, she said she was going to go uh, get a, a, a job there. And I got more and more discouraged about college. I decided that I was going to drop out. And my father, uh, one of the few times he gave me direct advice, said, my advice to you is is finish out this, this quarter with as good a grades as you can. So if you want to go back, um, you'll be in a, a good position to do that. And so I, I followed his advice and I dropped out of uh, college um, in the following December of, of 66. And uh, Gail wrote to me and, and said, you know, you come down and visit. I'm, I'm living on the panhandle of the Golden Gate Park with a couple of roommates and a big old Victorian house that we has been split up into apartments. So I went down and, and visited her. So this is now February of 1967. I learned that the panhandle of the Golden Gate Park was two blocks from Haight Street, three blocks from Ashbury Street. I had no idea as an innocent kid from Ohio what Haight-Ashbury meant, but it wasn't long before I would walk out on the porch and listen to the band that had the apartment next door called Country Joe and the Fish. I didn't know who they were uh, and smelled this smell. I said, that smells like when we used to burn leaves in the fall. And Gail said, you're so innocent. That's marijuana. <laughs> and so there I was, you know, in Haight-Ashbury in the spring of 67, she decided to apply to uh, San Francisco State in the art department. So I said, OK, I'll, I'll go. I, you know, it's one of my many trips visiting her and I'll go out to the um, uh, college with you and and. Uh, um, just wait while you have your interview. And so I'm standing in the hall of the art building at San Francisco State, looking at the student uh, paintings and drawings on the wall. And I hear this voice behind me it says, Peter? I said, what? I turned around, it's Morris, the guy who <laughs> picked me up for freshman orientation, who had told me about Reich. And he said, what are you doing here? I said, Gail is applying for um, uh, college here in the art department. He said, wow. He said, did you ever find those books by Reich? I said, no. He said, well, I live a few blocks away. Come over sometime and I'll, I'll lend them to you. So maybe in the next week or so, I went and visited him. And he took off the shelf, The Murder of Christ by, by Reich. And he opened it up and he said, one of the amazing things about this book, he said, look at this. And he showed me it was page after page of references that Reich had um, use in writing that book. And so I, I took that book back with me and on the back porch where I had my sleeping bag uh, at Gail's and her roommate's place, stayed up most of the night with a kerosene lamp reading uh, parts of that book. And it just absolutely grabbed me. And, and it's like, this guy is talking some sort of truth that I've never heard anybody write about before, talking about how people suffer personally, but also the social implications of that. And so I um, went back 
to and visited Morris again, he, he said, uh, I, I said, you know, I, I want to give you the book back. I haven't uh, finished it yet. He said, well, go down to City Lights Bookstore. Um, they have lots of Reich's books. And City Lights Bookstore was the bookstore founded by the poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And there were all of these books by Reich. I could only afford to buy a couple of them. One was The Murder of Christ. The other was Listen, Little Man. And I also bought The Function of the Orgasm. And those then became the beginning of my uh, education about uh, um, Reich. So, Dr. Christ, you mentioned that Morris had emphasized the references in The Murder of Christ. What, what was he getting at there? What was he, he was getting at was this is not just some guy giving opinions out of nowhere. He did uh, tremendous research about um, Christ and, and the history and the background of, of the ideas that he was putting forward in that book. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that that, that uh, really struck me. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the the other part of the the story to take a a, a few steps back um, when. So I was interested in biology, so I applied to the biology. Well, when I filled out my application for Lewis and Clark College, um, they asked, you know, what major and I really didn't know except I knew I loved uh, science and biology so I put that down and I they asked what where do you see uh, you going in your life what do you think you're going to do and I couldn't rem remember for a long time but years later I asked my father to uh, if he could go in the archives at Lewis and Clark after he'd retired and <laughs> did a copy of that application and he sent me a copy and there in my shaky 15 year old uh, cursive writing i had written that there were three things that i um uh thought that i wanted to do in some way to help people either be a teacher a social worker or a psychiatrist so that was before i'd ever heard of organomy and reich so that was already in me and even in in high school I I used to um, walk down to the college campus at night when the uh, medical student uh, club uh, showed movies, and I, I was intrigued by watching the movies about surgery, and I'll never forget the one of a knee surgery and a thyroid surgery. And so there was something about medicine and, and uh, helping people in a medical way that was already in me. And I, you know, through my own therapy, I sort of uncovered um, some of what that that story was about, which we can um, go into some. But uh, you mean therapy later on, not during that time of your life? Yeah. Yes, that's right. Therapy later on. You mentioned being intrigued by the surgery and having an interest in maybe being a social worker, a teacher, a psychiatrist. I think you said your your father was a professor. My father was a professor. Yes, he was a professor of of uh, soci in the sociology department. His specialty was uh, family life and sex education. And it's int I laugh because for many years I um, was not interested in um, uh, marital therapy, that kind of thing, because I knew my my father's approach to family life uh, was really kind of messed up. Uh, so the, the irony is 
when I look back, um, I followed very much in his footsteps, but did not want to think of myself as following in his footsteps, although I, I have no doubt he influenced me to, tremendously. But he was one of those people who was um, uh, a liberal trying to, um, we would have uh, um, family meetings at, at home that was supposedly democratic. I knew they weren't democratic. He would usually get his way. In fact, one of my memoir stories that I think I read at, at the college yes. talked about that. Um, but there, there's no question in, in my mind that, that um, his background uh, very much affected me. Did you have any understanding of, of psychiatrists at that point or of what they did or how they worked or did you know anybody? Um, I didn't know any psychiatrists, but, you know, my father um, uh, had been trained in psychotherapy. In fact, when um, I was in kindergarten, he took a year away from uh, Denison in, in Ohio, and we spent a year in Topeka, Kansas, where he studied at the Menninger Clinic, uh, uh, studying psychotherapy, family therapy. And I know during that period, I mean, I was only a five-year-old in kindergarten, so I know during that period I met psychiatrists. I know that was just sort of part of the milieu. But uh, when where I was growing up in Granville, I didn't know any uh, psychiatrists particularly. Um, so, <laughs> where where to take this from here? I, I, let me pick up the story. I think um, with reading Reich's books, conversations with Morris in in San Francisco, he told me um, how he had learned about uh, organomy and Reich himself, and it was from. Uh, Sandy Goodman in Ashland, Oregon. So Morris had grown up in Southern Oregon, Roseburg, Oregon. And so on some visit home, he had happened to go to some art presentation in Ashland, Oregon. And Sandy Goodman was an, uh, a sculptor, an artist who um, had been around the organomy crowd in New York. And uh, in fact, he had married the daughter of Simeon Tropp, who is one of the ergonomists that Reich had trained. And so he he moved to Ashland, Oregon, I think it's some to find a place that would be safe from from nuclear fallout. Uh, the, so this was in the mid early mid 60s when that was a concern. <laughs> and um, he then, as an artist, started doing self-expression classes. His wife, Sylvia, was a, a dance therapist. So I, I had heard about that, and Morris said, you got to go visit Sandy. And so I, I did, um, and again, I still didn't... Um, I uh, have a driver's license. These were the days that I was hitchhiking between Portland, Oregon, where my family lived, and, and San Francisco, where um, Gail was living. And so Ashland was sort of halfway in between on the route. And one time I, I wrote to Sandy Goodman and I said, I heard about you from Morris. I wondered if I could stop and visit. So Sandy took a, a um, very um, intense... I, I'm, I'm not quite, it's not quite liking to me, but but uh, looking back, he was actually quite seductive in, in the way that um, he, he's 
treated me like I was special um, and allowed me to stay there when he had these other students coming up that didn't stay there. And even on one of my visits with him, uh, he, he said, um, well, I think you're going to uh, do big things in orgonomy. And you know, the, the modest Quaker part of me said, no, you know, I could not tolerate having anybody say something positive. So I sort of dismissed it. Uh, but I also felt that he wasn't genuine about it, that he was trying to use it to connect with me for something for himself. And I mm. um, and so what what happened from there, uh, you know, I learned much more about Reich and ergonomy, just talking with Sandy and Sylvia. Um, I went to some of their self-expression classes on my visits and then Sandy had a a long class, um, what he called a, a long class, a whole weekend uh, session. And this was at the time where I was applying as a Quaker conscientious objector to, to uh, uh, with the draft board. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the experience I'd had with the draft board was just awful for me. I mean, I, I, I'm by nature, I think, a very sensitive person. And they were so contemptuous of me. Uh, and so in that long class, uh, I, you know, Sandy invited me to say, was there anything that had come up lately with me? And I told him that. And so he played the part of the draft board uh, members and, and was able to provoke a rage in me that was I had never felt in, in my life. And so I raged at him. Uh, then I went home to Portland um, and became severely sick with um, a sore throat and, and I think probably a, a strep throat with fevers of 102, 103, but I had decided I was going to cure myself with the macrobiotic diet. My parent, I wouldn't let my parents take me to a, a, a doctor, but I then somehow um, said, I'm, you know, just decided I'm going to just eat what I want. And I actually got better rather than worse, um, which I had been doing. And at that point, I said, Sandy Goodman had no idea what he was doing. He had powerful knowledge, but but totally um, uh, used it to um, to create something I, th I felt for his own ego. So once I got better, I decided I was going to move back down to San Francisco. Um, I had again gotten to know Morris uh, better. Morris had started dancing and, and he had um, had sort of a free expression dance event one time in, in, in his apartment with me and his girlfriend. And he said, well, you ought to join our dance troop. Well, you know, again, I'm just sort of hitchhiking back and forth between San Francisco and Portland doing odd jobs. But once I got better, I decided to move back down and see what might happen in San Francisco. I didn't know uh, where I was going to go for sure and learned that Morris had left San Francisco. The, the, this was the days before cell phones. I didn't even call. I didn't write. I'm just going <laughs> to go to San Francisco and, and, and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, learned that he had left San Francisco, moved to uh, LA to to get into organ therapy, 
Uh, and uh, one of the people from the um, long class uh, lived in uh, Sausalito outside of San Francisco. So I had a connection with her. I, I visited her as I was trying to sort out um, what, what I wanted to do and um, decided, no, I'm going to stay in San Francisco. I'll get a job. I'll go hitchhike down to San Francisco, visit. Um, at that point, um, I remember that, that one of Morris's old girlfriends owned some properties. I called her up and I said, do you know anybody that, that might have a room to rent? She said, oh, I have a room to rent. So, so I moved into her apartment and she also was aware of organomy. At that point, her boyfriend uh, was a fellow named Ben Benjamin who had moved out from New York and was very actively involved. There, there was sort of a whole organomy, organ therapy crowd, um, both in San Francisco and then many of them moved down to uh, LA. And so I got a job uh, at the Bank of America um, working uh, mail delivery midnight to eight and earned enough money um, that I decided I would uh, uh, see about going down to organ therapy with uh, Dr. Stoll in, in um, uh, California, near Los Angeles, which was the person that, that Morris had gone down to see. And it turns out a bunch of people from Ashland and from the San Francisco area had done that. So I, I continued doing that up until the that summer when I realized I need to move down to L.A. so I can continue in therapy more regularly. Um, so that was... Um, the beginning of my uh, uh, being in therapy. And meanwhile, I'd been reading the books by Reich, and I knew somewhere in me, this is the work that I want to do. But, you know, I was still uh, 17 years old at the time. I uh, hadn't gone back to school yet. And so for, for that first summer in L.A., I got a job in the Forest Service fighting brush fires in the Angeles National Forest. And commuting uh, that was within an hour drive um, of where uh, Dr. Stoll's office was. So we'd go down for therapy once a week with her fighting brush fires. And that summer was enough to convince me I don't want to be packing 50 pound hose packs up the mountain fighting brush fires. I'm going to go back to college. So that's when I went back to school at, at San, Fran San Fernando Valley State. And at that point, I knew I was interested in in, in pre-med. I, I went into the zoology department at, at that point as a zoology major and, uh, you know, eventually decided uh, to, to move over to um, uh, the Santa Monica area near UCLA and I transferred to UCLA. Um, and in my therapy, um, you know, as I said, I had it in the back of my mind that I would want to be, might want to be a medical organomist. But the way I was looking at it was, I, I don't know if I would qualify. So, you know, whatever you want to call that, um, good sense, <laughs> uh, modesty, whatever. Um, and and so I said, I need to just follow this step by step. And. Um, uh, my therapy with with um, Dr. Stoll was very helpful in mobilizing my anger, my aggression, 
Um, but there was something that that just um, was missing, and I don't think I knew it quite clearly at the time. Um, but you know, I I started to uh, apply to medical school. Um, and she said, well, I think you're you're really doing well. I think we should cut back on the sessions. And I started to um, get anxious or not quite anxious, but just um, unsure of what I what I wanted to be doing. I was working uh, lab assistant jobs at UCLA that I'd been doing when I was an, uh, before I graduated from there as an undergraduate. And I, I got um, uh, more and more sort of uncertain about what I wanted to do. I actually set up three uh, interviews to apply to the three medical schools in Southern California, um, UC Irvine, that was a new one, UCLA and uh, USC. And the long and short of it, the, I bounced the application check from for my first application with UC Irvine. I got I came late to my interview at USC and I said to myself, I my unconscious is making a decision. I'm not ready to do this. Um, and I, I said, I need to just put that aside. I don't know what it is that I want to do. I, I was involved with another uh, girlfriend, Nancy, um, and she had been in therapy, but had decided to leave therapy, move back to Washington. And I was really struggling with what I wanted to do. And, and at that point, Dr. Stoll said, well, I think you're, you're finished with therapy. We should stop. And it's only in recent years that I've been able to look back and realize, um, what happened, I got more and more depressed um, to the point that I was thinking about leaving LA, maybe I would move up to uh, Seattle area, somehow with the hopes, maybe I'd get back together with Nancy if she moved up there. Uh, but I was just really kind of lost. And I even set up an appointment with um, um, Michael Rothenberg, who was an organomist that had trained with Baker and was was in Seattle to talk with him about the possibility of seeing him. And but I got back to L.A. and um, uh, uh, the sister of the person that I mentioned in Sausalito uh, named Debbie Cohen, who's still around uh, involved with the college. I was one of that group that had moved down to L.A. She had stopped seeing Dr. Stoll and had changed to started seeing Dr. Duvall. Um, and she she just said one of those little things in a conversation after a, a, um, a party that had, had had some friends of ours where I just talked with her. And she said, how are you doing? I said, not so good. And she said, well, why don't you just see Dr. Duvall for an evaluation? just see him once. And I did that. And in one session, I felt like this guy really sees what I'm about. And and one of the things that he did, he, he said, I'm going to ask you a question. And I don't want you to answer right away. I want you to answer it as, um, as truthfully as you can, because I know the answer. Um, 
And he said, are you suicidal? And I started to cry. And I said, yes. Um, I'd not realized it, but as soon as uh, he asked that, and he said, do you have any guns? I said, yes, I learned some target practice. He said, bring them in. And so he took my guns and he he was able within three sessions to help mobilize my uh, anger and depression. And I, I came out of it really within a month. Uh, and I said, I, in my mind, I, I think Dr. Duvall saved my life. Uh, wow. And at that point, I, I had no question that um, I had to pursue this much more deeply. And, and what I started to say a few minutes ago, looking back, what I now realize is when Dr. Stoll said, uh, I think you're done with therapy, in my mind, that meant I'm healthy. And somewhere deep in me, I said, if this is health, I don't want to live like this because I just still was not able to access uh, my uh, deeper feelings. And, you know, at the time, I didn't know I was just struggling and thrashing around. And so at that point, I, I um, applied and, and uh, for a, another job, I knew, OK, I need to um, get a job so that I can um, really continue in therapy with Dr. Duval. And so I got a job at the Wadsworth VA Hospital as the chief technician of the pulmonary function lab. And within, you know, I mean, so I was um, doing spirometry, um, breathing tests with patients at the VA. I was supervising the people in the, the, um, the gas um, lab, uh, the measuring the oxygen levels. And within, I don't know, probably it was only just the first two days, I said, I'm working with patients. I love this. I said, I don't know if I whether I can ever be an ergonomist, but I would love to be a doctor. And so at that point, I, uh, it, it was now uh, into the fall. I started looking. Uh, almost all the applications were, were closed. There was one school in California, UC Davis, that still had open applications. I applied. They invited me for an interview. They said we're, we're full. But if uh, something opens up, uh, we'll, uh, we could uh, accept you. And in two weeks, I heard that they had a spot. Um, and so I started medical school at that point up in UC Davis. So, you know, that's a, 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 um, a hike from L.A. But, um, you know, at that point, there was no doubt in my mind that I wanted to be uh, a, a medical ergonomist if I could. And if not, I would be uh, 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 an internist is what I envisioned, even though, uh, you know, looking at my interest in surgery, I think if I'd never heard about ergonomy, I might well have become a surgeon. Uh, I don't I don't know, uh, which <laughs> which reminds me. Um, Interrupt me if, <laughs> if there's more that you. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> you don't want to. But I just remembered. Um, so I'm, I'm getting a step ahead of uh, of the story. One 
once I finished medical school, I decided to come uh, east to, to train uh, with the college. And at that point, it meant training with Dr. Baker. But it also meant I knew that, uh, that Robert Dew um, was, had trained as an internist as his traditional approach before he became an organomist. So um, I, I, it, in my medical uh, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm taking a detour back. In, in my medical school rotations, um, my advisor in psychiatry was um, nicknamed Dr. Sunshine. He was this absolute Californian nut. Uh, <laughs> no sense whatsoever to me. I felt like I learned far more from the schizophrenic patients out at the Sepulveda VA hospital that I evaluated and worked with than I learned from him. I, I loved my surgery rotations, um, but I said I I want more patient contact. I loved internal medicine, the discipline of diagnosis. And so at that point, I decided that, that I would uh, um, apply for a residency in, in internal medicine and thought, well, if Dr. Dew can become an organomist from being an internist, maybe that's a pathway that I, that I could follow. So I set up um, electives in New York City to uh, interview at various hospitals. And um, at, by that time, the NYU course about Reich and organomy was going on. And Dr. Dew was giving one of those talks during that month that I was there. So I went uh, down to listen to his talk and I had um, contacted, written him earlier and said, you know, I'd like to just talk with you about your path becoming an organomist. Uh, so we went out to dinner afterwards and I talked with him about that. And so um, I, I did uh, I did match for the internal medicine program at St. Vincent's in New York City. So I knew I was going to be coming to, to New York uh, and uh, tried to arrange my uh, sessions with uh, Dr. Baker uh, whenever I I, I could manage it in my schedule. And I think the first time I was there, um, I had met Dr. Baker when I came back for those interviews, when I did the electives. I said, uh, you know, I'm interested in uh, uh, therapy with you. I'm interested in training. And so if I'm in New York, would you see me? And so I saw him for a couple sessions during that month. I was, was there as a... So you um, stopped therapy with Dr. Duvall? Well, at... Uh, at I, I, I had continued therapy with Dr. Duvall um, uh, up through when I left uh, L.A. to to move to New York for my internship. So, nice. so yeah, so you know, good question. Yeah, I, there, there's some things about that that I think are important about my path in becoming a, an organomist. So I'll, I'll go back to them. But, but the, the, when I, a minute ago, what I remembered was the story with Dr. Baker. Um, the first time I saw him after I'd started my internship at St. Vincent's, um, he said, not many people know this. And he had that droll way of talking. And he said, um, I was going to go to St. Vincent's when I came out of medical school. He said, I was in New York, I was uptown, and um, I, I was had applied to a residency in, in surgery at St. Vincent's. And I said, really? He said, yeah. And halfway down um, 7th Avenue, 
Uh, I had terrible abdominal pains and I knew I had developed acute appendicitis. I asked the cab driver to take me to the nearest hospital, which happened to be Bell, uh, Bellevue. Uh, I, I had appendicitis. They did an appendectomy and I was just too embarrassed to ever call St. Vincent's again to reschedule the interview. And he said, so I looked around all of the surgery uh, residencies had were filled and I looked to see was there anything else that was available and there was an opening in psychiatry at Greystone Hospital in New Jersey so I applied and I got in there and the rest is history <laughs> <laughs> this was my way of him saying how he became a medical ergonomist was by accident becoming a psychiatrist where he then uh, got a job, you know, at Marlboro State Hospital, where he then heard about Reich, and and, and the rest is history. But you know, so I, I don't know if that story is ever uh, documented anywhere. But it's one of those it was one of those moments where he, it was like he was saying, "Yep, yeah, you and I have something we share, St. Vincent's." <laughs> um, so. Um, where, where where to take this story uh, from here? Because you had asked if I had stopped uh, therapy with Dr. Duvall. Yes. And what, what happened with, with Dr. Duvall was, um, again, what, what I've subsequently learned in looking at myself in, in therapy much later was I have been driven very much by my unconscious mind making decisions for me, uh, seemingly making decisions for me that I was not consciously making. And um, I think that happens with many people, but, but for some reason with me, many of those unconscious reactions have been the very best thing, the very best decisions I could have made. And, and what happened with with Dr. Duvall is he knew I was interested um, in um, uh, training as a medical ergonomist. And I f he invited me to sit in on sessions with him uh, when I was um, in medical school at, at UC Davis. I commuted down a, a um, classmate of mine had a girlfriend in Los Angeles, so we, I would uh, we would come down for for weekends, and I would have a session with um, Dr. Duvall, and uh, I didn't talk with my classmate about that, but I would go down for therapy, and then Dr. Duvall um, allowed me uh, in my uh, sophomore year of medical school to sit in on some sessions, and then I transferred down, down to UCLA um, to finish my medical school. And then I could see uh, Dr. Duvall much more regularly. His office was literally um, a five minute walk from the UCLA campus. And so I was continuing therapy, but I felt and knew he had high hopes for me uh, as a medical ergonomist. And he, he 
didn't say anything to me at the time, but I could feel it. And I felt it as a pressure that that I wasn't ready and a burden that I just knew I wasn't ready to take on. I needed to take things step at a time. And so when I applied to to go back east to uh, um, do my residency in New York City and train with, with Duval, he took it as, as a somewhat of a betrayal, I think. Um, and then it all came out in the open in my sessions and we that he felt I was running away from a certain depth that we were getting to in, in my therapy with him. And I think he was right about that. But what he wasn't right about was was that um, I wasn't ready to to really um, be solidly on the track of being a, a medical ergonomist yet. I need needed to just take my own time. Uh, and subsequently, you know, when I, um, you know, after I'd been in New York for uh, a year, I went back out to L.A. and visited him, uh, spent a week, um, uh, had uh, again some therapy with him and and sat in on sessions with him for that week. And during that week, we really cleared the air about, um, you know, my feeling that he he had high hopes for me. He said, well, I didn't want to put pressure on you, so I didn't say anything. I said, I'm the opposite. I can feel all those things. If I hear the truth um, explicitly, I can deal with it much better. And so we you know, I think we we really um, worked through that. And so then I was much more free to just continue my therapy with with Dr. Baker. Um, but I did move back out to L.A. after my uh, second year of medical residency with the hope at that point of training with Duval and in a sense taking over his his practice and unfortunately within three months of me getting back out there uh, he developed uh, cancer and and had died uh, within three months so there I was back in LA finishing my um, medical residency trying to decide what to do so I moved back to uh, to New York to continue my training and and therapy with with Dr. Baker um, and uh, I don't know how many of our listeners know some of the story, but there was a falling out between Dr. Baker and his son, Courtney, who Dr. Baker had hoped would take over much of the training. Um, and so Courtney and a group of other ergonomists left the college. And at that point, um, Dr. Baker I was at that point was in my um, last year of psychiatric residency. So I'd come back east to do a psychiatry residency um, and uh, as well as trained with Baker. And and so um, when those people left, uh, that that included Dr. Dew, who who had taught the didactic course to me and was the one who continued teaching the, the didactic course um, through that whole period. And Dr. Baker said, we need somebody to, he said, what are you interested in, in, in doing in terms of ergonomy? I said, be, you know, continuing to train as an ergonomist. And he said, what, what else in terms of the work of the college? I said, well, I started doing some work proofreading the journal. I'd like to continue that. And he said, well, 
um, you're a chief resident in your psychiatry residency. Um, you told me you like to teach. I said, yeah, I do. Um, just sort of getting my feet wet with that. And he said, how about teaching the didactic course? I said, I'm not even done with my residency and I haven't practiced as a medical ergonomist. And, and he said, you know the theory, don't you? I said, yes. So that was when I, I then started teaching the didactic course, which I've con continued in that role, you know, to, to the most recent course we had. And it was Dr. Baker knew me well enough to know at that moment, the way he asked me was not going to be um, uh, feeding my ego the way uh, whatever was happening with Dr. Duval started to do. Um, and uh, I think that the, the bottom line was was that Dr. Baker really, you know, he, he just kept it so simple. You know the theory, don't you? So like you don't have to be any great <laughs> expert at ergonomy to teach the didactic course. Yeah. It sounds like he really had a way with words. Oh, he did. Yes. <laughs> One or two, many people have described his words like a, a, a single word, like a knife that would just cut right through. Um, so. Yeah. So. Um, I. I, I actually started um, uh, uh, supervision with some of the ergonomists before I had finished my residency. So I, I had um, uh, supervision meetings with um, uh, Louisa Lance, who was Courtney Baker's uh, uh, wife at the time, just and, and some with um, uh, Michael Gantz, just going over my residency psychotherapy cases. And to me, that was a tremendous, uh, um, uh, tremendously valuable thing was to just work purely character analytically before uh, having anybody on the couch. Uh, and so then once I finished my residency, I set up my own office. I didn't want the pressure of, of um, uh, having to make my living with with my private practice. So I continued teaching um, at Robert Wood Johnson, which is where I did my psych residency. And I was there 60% uh, time as my uh, practice built. Um, and then I took on a, a couple of organ therapy patients. And at that point, you know, in my mind, everybody would be seen on on the couch. Um, uh, undressed and down to comfortable clothes to to work with them and there was something about that the the first i i i can't even quite remember which page i have two patients that i i i saw that um were the first organ therapy patients um uh that came wanting uh organ therapy by that name uh, and, and there was something about just understanding their character and being able to look at their body and see where they were holding back uh, the emotions that um, one was a, um, a fellow. I know his basic problem was was paranoia, uh, who was very mistrustful, but he just held himself so rigid that just having him lie down he relaxed and we were able to actually address uh, his mistrust that, that he had glossed over when we were sitting up uh, talking before that. 
Uh, and another was a, um, a, a woman, very emotional, very uh, uh, intense. I think I wrote up her case at some point in, in um, um, uh, I can't remember the title, but uh, dramatic reactions that come up in therapy where she had um, uh, visual blindness as a way of, of uh, not, because she couldn't tolerate seeing things. So the connection between the the body and, and the emotions and the character is just such a core part of medical organ therapy that it, you know, from my own experience in therapy, it, it just made sense and, and worked. Yeah. Dr. Chris, you mentioned um, when you first read The Murder of Christ, uh, not just an individual suffering, but the way it affects the, the social realm. Was there any work that you were doing in your in your residency in your early time as a medical ergonomist in in the social realm? Um, in my residency, um, my um, training in in group therapy and family therapy, working in that social realm, somehow never quite clicked for me. I was interested in it. And you know, I mentioned about my father. In retrospect, I'm, I'm quite certain I, I was terribly skeptical of family therapy because that's what he did. And um, he divorced my mother after they'd been married um, 40 years. Um, the tension when when she she had um, chronic renal failure when she went on dialysis at home. There was something about the tension of that 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 just got uh, terribly in the way of their relationship. So uh, he and I had sort of a difficult patch that we went through, but we came to a rapprochement and I visited him and I will never forget him saying, when we, when you and your, your mother and I were going through difficult times, I decided to, to um, go into th therapy. And it was, this was like his confession that he had serious enough problems that he actually uh, asked for help. And, and he said it with that sort of wry smile that he could have. And, and he said, yeah, the first session I went to the therapist, I described um, all the things going on in our family. And, and he said, um, the therapist told me, you're not telling me anything I haven't heard before, but just not all in one family. So that was my father's way of saying, okay, I acknowledge I may have been an expert in family life, but I didn't know how to do it in reality. And that was a major uh, step, I think, both for, for him and our relationship, but for me being able to let go of my um, negative thoughts about uh, family and, and marital therapy. But I, I did come back to working in, in that area. And, and how that happened was um, uh, Marty Goldberg uh, contacted the college uh, to ask if there was someone who would be a, an advisor on his master's thesis because he wanted to look at the character of organizations. Uh, and he thought that Reich's uh, ideas about character were applicable in the organizational realm. So I started working with him and we worked very closely and I got steeped in in group process, organizational um, thinking and realized um, in 
any time that I had attempted to do um, uh, uh, marital therapy, um, it, it just—I mean, any time I had attempted to work with with children, I needed to work with the parents. But that's where I was struggling: was how to do that. And and then it dawned on me that the the parental relationship is is a love relationship of the mates but it's a working relationship in raising children and somehow i started um, applying the the work relationship uh, knowledge that i was learning in working uh, with marty goldberg to uh, looking at families and in fact that was the basis of the paper that i wrote the biosocial basis of couples and family therapy that's in the journal and from there some other people learned that i was interested in in organizations um, and someone uh, asked me if i would uh, help with the company that they had invested in and so one thing and another i, I went from uh, applying that to, to families to actually working and so about a quarter of my practice now i, I would call it purely social ergonomy working uh, in a as a functional business consultant uh, with organizations so there we are um, the three things at age 15 i said i might want to be a teacher a social worker or a psychiatrist and i've somehow ended up doing some aspect of all three of those all three <laughs> and looking back uh, you know my father politically was was liberal but i i i looked at at baker's book um, man in the trap very early on when i was uh, had gone back to college it was in the library and his chapter on the sociopolitical character types he talks about the liberal rebels against um, their father the conservative competes with their father and uh, my parents had become quakers competition just really was not acceptable um, one of the consequences of which my siblings and, and I are some of the most competitive siblings I've ever run into. <laughs> we did equal. The competition is going to come out in one form or another. Um, but, uh, you know, I've thought back and and how do you um, rebel against someone who is so open, seemingly so open minded as my father and saying, well, we need to look at all sides and so forth. And I realized I didn't really ever rebel against him. I competed against him. I, I he was originally trained as a chiropractor before he decided to leave that and become a professor and sociologist. So instead of a chiropractor, I became a medical doctor instead of a, a um, uh, a marital therapist, I became a social ergonomist and, you know, instead of, uh, you know, teaching at a, um, a, a university, I, I competed with finding my own uh, um, creative ways to teach at the college. And not only that, but you're president of the American College of Ergonomy. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> That's a that's a whole other story that that I'm not sure we should go into. But um, th there's one other thread in in my story that I think I, I want to mention, and that's the sure. the personal um, thread that um, again 
The unconscious mind is an amazing uh, thing. Um, I, the I ended up marrying the second girlfriend that I, I mentioned, Nancy, um, and we had uh, one daughter. We have one daughter uh, who is now um, in her mid thirties, and that marriage started to really run into serious trouble. Um, when my daughter was um, about a year to 18 months old, uh, and we separated at that point. And I wrote a poem uh, about seeing my daughter's face when I came over to visit, her, her excitement, but also her, her anxiety. And in that poem, I said something like, um, is, is it me? At three, afraid I won't see my mother again, or is it you? Um, and I, all of us, it, it was more explicit, afraid my mother would die, I think was the line in the poem. And, and all of a sudden I said, where the heck did that come from? You know, um, and I called my father and, and asked, what ha I knew that my mother had been sick when my brother was born when I was three, that she had been uh, in the hospital. Um, but I had never consciously uh, had any thought about how ill she was. Um, and so I called him and he said, oh, yeah, it was hour to hour. We didn't know whether she was going to live or not. And so that says a lot about him and and our whole family, that just things were not talked about. Um, when I look back, here he was in his late 30s with four children, uh, aging, ranging in age from eight to a, uh, a one-month-old infant. What the hell he must have been going through at that time. And there I am at, at three years old, um, not knowing what was going to happen and not being able to talk with him. And, you know, so I've looked at this but feeling it. or yeah, yeah, but feeling it. And so that was deep in my un unconscious that, that, um, you know, my mother almost died when I was three. And, and I think that one simple fact, um, uh, set a particular quality to my whole character that that I just have responded stoically and I mean I even mention it in terms of the pandemic that my response tends to be stoic but I'll just take on the burden of taking care of everybody else and I think that was a significant driving force in me wanting to to help people wanting to uh, take care of people you know I, I knew um, you know, my mother went on dialysis when I was a uh, in my second year of medical school. So I, I had no illusions that she had significant um, uh, medical problems. But the the depth of of where that came from in me uh, is one of those pieces that you know it had been kept so unconscious and then broke through um, before I could even begin to deal with it in therapy. It broke through in a poem of all things. Wow. Yeah. So, so Dr. Chris, this has been a, a wonderful story that you've been sharing with me in the audience. Is there anything else you'd like to say? 
Well, thinking about the story I've told, there, there are actually a couple of, of crucial things that um, I want to be sure that I mention. And you mentioned a, a while ago that uh, I had become president of the American College of Organomy. And thinking back that year that I was first elected, which was October of uh, 1991, believe it or not, um, uh, was one month before I met my wife, uh, Hillary. I mean, obviously she wasn't my wife at that point, but we met one month after I was elected president. At that point, I had custody of my uh, five-year-old daughter, Tara. And that year then became a whirlwind year. So the, uh, we were uh, married in June of uh, the following June, 1992. And so Right at the point that I became president of the college, um, I, I was in a new love relationship. And when I mentioned to you that I had started working with uh, the parents of children to as working relationships, I could never really do marital therapy, uh, even though I had tried other than working on the work relationship between parents until I was in a happy marriage. So once I met Hillary, that's when I could really work with couples in, in an effective way. So uh, that was the beginning of, of her having a, a profound effect on my development as a medical ergonomist. But she's also just been an incredible support. Um, the, the next annual dinner where I was elected again, she organized that. She had been involved with planning and she's just been an incredible support. She's also my uh, first editor of all of my writing. So my writing stories that uh, um, I've uh, been working on, uh, she's been an incredible support. So in so many ways, I could not be the medical ergonomist I am today uh, if it hadn't been for my relationship with her, her support, and her ongoing support with all kinds of things with the college. And the other key person that I realized that I just haven't mentioned is uh, Dr. Konya, who's had a profound effect on me. I first met him um, when I came back east and started training with the college. Um, so that would have been in 1978, I started in the clinical seminars. And so he was one of the leaders of the clinical seminars. And then when Dr. Baker died in 1985, I switched to Dr. Konya as my personal therapist and training therapist. So he's had a profound effect on me. And I have the privilege, I feel like, of having worked with three wonderful um, uh, special medical ergonomists, Dr. Duval, Dr. Baker, and Dr. Konya, all of whom are incredibly different in terms of their personalities and, and characters, but each one effective in, in their own way. And he's also been um, an incredible colleague uh, in, in the college. And I've been president, he's been vice president since the very beginning. And that doesn't even do, do justice to the, the role he's played in, in uh, my training, in my uh, own personal emotional development. Some people have said, if I am president, I've been the head of the college, he is the heart of the college, just that part that keeps the energy moving from, from the chest. So. Mm. And there's one other thing that that uh, strikes me, and that was I, I mentioned um, the murder of Christ as the first book of Reichs that that I read that really had an impact. And 
Uh, I haven't mentioned it yet. I've mentioned it elsewhere, but uh, there's and some- you were 15 or 16 at the time? I was um, at the time, uh, I was 17 at the time that I okay. first found uh, that book. So I first heard about um, Organomy from Morris when uh, I was 16. Um, but it wasn't until I was 17 that I actually found uh, any of the books and borrowed that one from Morris. So, but th there, there is a line in that book that's for some reason just really stuck with me, and I, I will reflect back of the impact that it had. But the line that stuck with me is "Armored man rushes to the fuck," and. I, at that point, was very shy, particularly about girls, and I had been around jocks and, and other guys who you know, were womanizers, and, and I know in just in my heart, I felt like, God, if I've got to be like that, I'm never going to have a girlfriend. And there was something about simultaneously reading Reich saying, armored man rushes to the fuck, and then having a chapter that he called the genital embrace, where he really distinguishes neurotic, messed up sexuality with armored man rushing to the fuck from uh, healthy, um, sweet, uh, emotionally connected sexuality in a chapter called the genital embrace. And looking back, I am very fortunate that I read that before I was ever sexually active. I think it, um, reading it just made me realize I don't have to be like all these other guys to have some sort of healthy love and sexual relationship. And mm. I, I, it's one of those things, sometimes just one phrase or one bit in Reich's writing just captures somebody. And I think that contrast uh, was what really captured me. Mm. Yeah. You know, if more 17 year olds could hear that now. I know that's that's what I keep thinking. God, how lucky I was. And, you know, young people, I know you work with a lot of young people and what they're dealing with now with sexuality, I think, is far more messed up and complicated than when I was that age. Yeah, even my own. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's been very moving to hear your story, and, and I really appreciate it, you, you sharing it with me and the audience. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, I wouldn't be here where I am now if, if it weren't for having learned about Reich and Organomy when I was 16 years old. I mean, I have no uh, question about that. It, it so profoundly affected not just my personal life, but my uh, work life. Um, so when Reich talked about love, work, and knowledge, it it um, deeply affected every aspect of those three in, in me. Yeah. And is Mora still alive? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Talking about <laughs> more more serendipity, coincidence, fate, whatever you want to call it, we sort of drifted apart. Um, and in February 2011, um, I got a, a letter from him saying, um, it's been an act of courage for you to keep me on your Christmas card list for the last 10 years with no response. And I wanted to 
let you know that um, I had a heart attack a couple of months ago, and it's brought me into contact with looking at who are the people that have mattered in my life. And so I, I tried to find his phone number. He wasn't listed, um, but um, I, I paid some money to do an online search, got his phone number, called him up because I didn't want to just write back after that letter. And he, he was astounded that I had done the, the, um, the, the sleuthing to get his number and I'd actually gotten it. But, um, and so on the phone, you know, part of our conversation was, so what are you doing? And I said, well, I started writing, um, memoir stories about um, that started with my time at St. Vincent's and have expanded into other parts of my life. And I said, the irony is a month ago, I wrote the story about how I first met you uh, when you picked me up driving to um, uh, freshman orientation. He said, well, I'd love to see it. And the long and short of it is he, he and I now um, uh, he, he became what we called my cardiac critic, telling me whether my heart was in the stories. So he had been working on a novel at that point and knows a tremendous about writing. And so um, he, he and I have worked on my writing together. Uh, and um, we have a, even though I've just not found time since the pandemic to do much uh, writing on that, he and I still have a once a week uh, online a meeting where we just catch up on things. So. Well, that's wonderful to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just never know. I and mean, as I said, you could get mystical about it, about fate or whatever. But right, uh, right. there's just been so many little things like that. You know. Mm. Again, th this has been a, a special treat, and, and I thank you very much for sharing it with me and, and the listeners. Well, you're very welcome, and thank you for having me. How do you feel after listening to this story? What do you think? I'm fortunate to call Dr. Christ a mentor and colleague of mine, and as I said, I was moved to hear about his journey, and it reminded me that many of us first learned about ergonomy and medical organ therapy as adolescents or young adults. Perhaps some will hear this podcast and consider reading for themselves The Murder of Christ, The Function of the Orgasm, or even one of Dr. Christ's wonderful articles for the Journal of Ergonomy on our website. We are interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at ergonomy.org. Stay tuned for our next episode, and we'd love to have you join us for one of our webinars. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. I hope you share this podcast with your friends and family and let them know about our work. You can connect with us at ergonomy.org or a different kind of psychiatry.com. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast with the ACO. Since 1968, the psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Ergonomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships, medical orgone therapy as practiced by the physicians at the ACO offers a way forward, often without the use of medication. <music>